You're listening to TIP. When times are great, you think they'll never end. When times are bad, you think they'll never end. So like at that point, it was kind of like, is this market ever going to turn around? So... In this week's episode, I talk with Nick LaMagna about lease options, rich dad, poor dad, wholesaling, creative financing, and much, much more. Nick is a successful real estate investor, capital raiser, entrepreneur, and a New York State Golden Gloves boxer. When it comes to real estate, Nick has done it all. If you are someone who has felt limited by not having enough capital or not having financing options available to you, this episode is for you. I hope you guys all enjoy it. Let's dive right in. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Real Estate 101 podcast. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard, and with me today, I have Nick LaMagna. Nick, welcome to the show. Dude, thanks so much for having me on, man. I've been looking forward to coming on and talking to you. Yeah, I appreciate you joining me. I want to start our conversation today by talking about a strategy that you've implemented that I've heard about, and I've done a little bit of research, but I don't know a ton about it. Then we'll get into some of your deals and some of the other stuff you've done. Let's start by talking about lease options. First, tell us what lease options are and how real estate investors listening to the show might be able to utilize them. And then tell us a bit about your experience with them and how you've leveraged them in your investing journey. Definitely, man. As I was saying earlier, uh, I have a lot of weird tools in my tool belt. So some of them are a little bit more my bread and butter. Some of them are just stuff that I try just to see how they work out and get some experience on me. And lease options kind of one of those things. In essence, what you're basically doing is giving somebody the option to purchase a property with certain terms and conditions, but not the obligation to, which is a little bit different. So like, for instance, one of them that we did recently, I had a friend that was looking to sell his house. So he's like, look, I got this, this rental property. I don't really need it. I don't really want it. But if you know anybody who might be looking to buy a, a turnkey rental property, then like, let me know. And so I went back to him and I was like, well, you know, you have some equity in it. How much do you need right now? Like, what would really kind of float your boat? Would you be open to some creative terms? And he was kind of like, sure, whatever. So I was like, all right. So now that I have a seller that's interested in doing something potentially creative, maybe I could get some sort of lease option in place. What it turned out to was there was somebody who was interested in potentially keeping it to eventually move in or in this specific case to hold it long term as a rental property. So instead of him going, and getting a loan on it, what he did was basically exercise a lease options. So he said, hey, I'll give the owner $5,000 down and now we'll lock in a price at $100,000. Maybe the owner owed $75,000 on it. Initially, he said, hey, he gives me $5,000. If he goes and he buys this at the end of the 12 months for $100,000, I'll credit him back his $5,000. But if the market goes up, I don't get to bank on that appreciation. I've locked this guy into the sale price. And what I'll do is over the next year, even though in this specific case, it's just the option to buy, there's a tenant in there. So all the rent and everything is going to go to him. So he basically takes it over like he bought it, but he doesn't actually have to go and qualify for a loan or anything in this specific case. At the end of a 12-month period, they would be responsible now to make the decision of, is this $5,000 going to go towards my option to buy it at that price? And now I have to refinance or sell out. Or what we did is put an extension for another $1,000. You can get an extension for another 12 months. If it was somebody who was looking to get into a deal creatively, it's a way to maybe get into a deal without having to immediately worry about getting your credit hit or getting approved for a mortgage or going through any of the full doc loan type of process, getting in for a small amount of money and taking possession of a property. You could technically turn around and resell it as a wrap, or it's a good way to get into a rental. And if you did it in a market like Florida, even a year ago, two years ago, that's appreciating like 22%, you'd be able to turn around a year, 12, 18, 24 months from then, easily pull money out from a bank or refinance and get that guy all his money back, maybe turn around and just flip it and take some equity out of it. Just another way to get into a property if maybe you're not looking great on paper right now for credit, or you don't have a ton of money right now to put down as cash, but you want the control of a property with the option of locking it at a great price. If the property has appreciated a lot in value, can the seller just kind of negate that contract and can they just essentially buy them out and then keep the property and then sell it themselves for the profit or are they really locked into it? No, they're locked into it. So and I'm sure there's ways around that. Like I've seen them done a lot of different ways. I think your contracts, as far as lease options go, I think the contracts are like the major thing of like whatever kind of writing you're put in there, 
whatever the people want in there. So I'm sure that there's people that put something in there, like if it X, Y, and Z, then I have to pay you whatever you would have made on there. The ones that I've done are the ones that I've helped people do. We haven't really done that because the way that I usually look at it is by doing the lease option, you're kind of saying, this is what I'm okay with making on this property. When this guy goes and buys it at 100,000, if I own 75, I'll make my 25, you gave me your five. I'm okay with that because maybe I just don't want the liability or the headache of being a landlord right now, dealing with the tenant right now. You're kind of taking something off my plate. I don't feel like dealing with a realtor. I don't feel like putting it on the market. I'm basically accepting I'm giving up whatever potential market appreciation I might have by having like something solid in place. You also want to make sure that in that situation, like I'm always looking at a lot of times when people do it to put a homeowner in, they'll say, okay, look, there's somebody that maybe is in this property, which I've done in the past when the market was down and it was harder to get approved for a loan. You could get somebody in and say, look, I'll rent you this property with the option to buy. You give me a non-refundable option deposit of $5,000. I'll credit you back $100 a month of rent at the end of the 12 months, but I'll lock you in at, let's say, $150,000. That person should be on pace to, to work with a mortgage broker, work with a credit expert, to be able to be approved to buy that at the end of the 12, 18, 24 months, whatever those learn terms are. So I feel like in a situation with the lease option, what you're doing is if you bank on, I'm going to raise the price later on, that person that you put in with the hopes of potentially buying that home, now maybe they don't qualify because they were only getting approved for 150, market went up, now you want 200. So you know, I feel like you're kind of doing a service for somebody by allowing them to get into a property that maybe they wouldn't have been able to. Crazy market, there's no deals out there. They locked in a place that they might want to move. You know what I mean? You could, but I feel like it gets a little greedy if you do that personally. But I'm sure if you put it in your contracts that you have that option, you can. There's still some liability there for the owner, right? Because most likely they have a mortgage still. So they still have that, yes. that liability there, right? Absolutely. So they do have that. What you're basically saying is in the contracts that we did, they're taking responsibility for everything. So if anything breaks in the apartment, any stuff comes up, like the lease liabilities get transferred over to the person who now has the lease option, but they're still protected because if the person doesn't exercise it or if the person doesn't pay the mortgage, they can just now cancel out that contract. Now the owner can take it back. So generally what I try and do is set up at least a one month reserve in there. So that way, at least if they miss a payment, there's a payment in escrow and now that's violated those contracts. Or for some reason, there's like a sub two type of thing like that. Like in this specific case, the one we just did, the person took it over as a rental, not necessarily as somebody to go and move in. So it was like, if you don't pay me by this date, I still have to pay my mortgage. I still have to pay my rent. So you missed one month. You violated this contract. You ate all that money. Now I take it back and you're kind of out. How does it work with the due on sale clause? So the due on sale clause with the lease option, when they go to exercise that, they would have to get paid off. But because there actually hasn't been any transfers at that point, it's not like a sub two. They just have the options. They haven't actually bought it. I haven't seen or heard of any due on sale clauses being exercised on the lease option side of it. The sub two side, I have never experienced it. I've heard every now and then there's somebody that you heard of that potentially went through that. I've never seen it happen or anybody it's happened to, but I haven't seen that with lease options at all. Yeah. Like you said, the title's not changing ownership. So there's technically no sale, right? So there's nothing to be due on. Yeah. Makes sense. Before you were doing lease options going way back, you got your start in real estate because you weren't able to pursue your dream career anymore after an injury. And your mom forced you to read (laughs) Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I think most people listening to the show today know why Rich Dad, Poor Dad had an impact on you and led you down the path that you're on now. But why did your mom want you to read it? How did she know about that book herself? Is or was she a real estate investor? No, she wasn't. You know, I've actually never been asked that question. I don't know why she had that. Maybe, and I don't know if she's actually ever read it, to be honest. I should really ask her that. I haven't been asked that question, but they were doing the kind of stuff where we were, we were dilly-dallying and we were going to like local seminars and we were reading books about stuff. We just never really pulled the trigger on any properties at that point. And when I was kind of sitting around, I don't know if maybe it came of one of like one of the Carlton Sheets boxes that we bought, like maybe the Rich Dad Poor Dad book was in it or something like that. Oh, I don't know if she went and she was part of a book of the month club at one point. I remember like the Robert Allen One Minute Millionaire came. So it might have come from that, but it was laying around for whatever reason. And I'm not really sure why she had pushed me to read that book. Man, maybe it was just one of those fate things. But I always joke around and I say, I fought her on it for like months. I was like, leave me alone. I don't want to read the book. Stop asking me to read the book. And eventually I was like, if I read the book, will you leave me alone? And then it like changed my whole life. So I always go back to moms are always right. No matter how much you think they're a pain in your butt or they're bugging your moms are always right. So if it wasn't for her pushing that book on me and like having things click, I probably wouldn't be where I am today. So that, that's, that's interesting though. I am going to go back and figure out where that book came from and why that specific book she pushed me to read. What does she think of where you're at today and all that you've done from the day you read that book to where you are now? It's weird because uh, 
Like for me, they don't really act or talk any different. Every now and then they try and start up conversations, but I'll hear them when they talk to one of their friends or somebody else will call me and, be, and like, they'll say how proud they are of me now. You know what I mean? So it's kind of one of those things where it makes me feel weird if they say stuff to me or ask me about real estate or things like that. But I will say I didn't come from money, but I always came from a very supportive family. And my mom and my dad and my brother have always been very supportive and really backed me up on anything I did. From what I can tell, they're, they're proud of me now. And I'm sure they're happy that I've made that decision because uh, you know, for some of the other people that know my story, there were some tough times over the course of the years following that. And thankfully, I had taken a leap into real estate and put myself in a position where I could take on some bills and some expenses that weren't really something that I don't think we would have been able to had I not gotten to my place in life where I am now. You mentioned that they're supportive, but were they hesitant at all with what you're doing? Did, was there any moment where your mom had handed you that book and then later you actually took action on that book and she's like, Oh, wait a second. This isn't exactly, you know, this isn't exactly what I anticipated for you. You know, I can understand kind of what you're doing, but I'm a little bit nervous for you. Maybe I haven't done this before. I don't know exactly what you're doing. So I'm a little bit nervous because that's kind of what I've had in my family. Very, very supportive, always will back me and help me do what I need to do. But they've been a little hesitant on some of the things that I've done just because they haven't done it. And they don't know a lot about it. So I'm wondering if that happened with your mom, dad, brother, or any family really. Yes and no. So I remember like the first time. I read the Rich Dad Poor Dad book. I told my mom, I was like, hey, you were right. This is really interesting. And then there was uh, like the One Minute Millionaire came like that same week. And then the newspaper came and it, the newspaper, like people were like showing my age. This paper came with stuff before the internet. And it was like, hey, two hour invest with no money down seminar, Nassau Coliseum or wherever it was over here in New York. And I remember I was like, man, it's fate. Like I can go to this thing and learn how to invest in real estate with Robert Allen or whatever. And so I signed up for it. And then I remember me and my dad were going out and my mom, I guess, must have gone and done some research about it. And she chased me out and she was like, wait a minute, don't go. They're going to try and sell you stuff. You know, the same kind of thing that everybody sees now. And I was like, well, I don't have any money. They can try and sell me whatever they want. It doesn't matter. My dad came to me to the first one. We wound up buying like a three-day class and stuff like that. And they both came with me to that one. So they had showed up at a few different places with me and taken some courses with me. So they did have a background on some of the strategies and they had seen some of the credible people that I still keep in touch with to this day. I don't think it was as blanketed like uh, we don't understand it or we know what they're doing. They really liked the people. They heard it from... Because you know it's different when I say it, but they heard somebody else saying the stuff and talking about the real estate and the successes and stuff. So I think they were a little bit more supportive, not necessarily that they believed or didn't believe in me, but I think they did trust the process and the people that at least real estate worked. But then I will say probably one of the biggest moments I had is when I was out in Las Vegas looking at like condos and properties one time at this like buying tour. And I called my mom and I was like, hey, there's this property and I think I want to buy it. It'll make a really good rental. And I was almost hoping she was going to say, no, don't do that. It's crazy. Let's talk about like all the things that people usually say. But she was like, yeah, go for it. And I was like, oh, like, are you sure? And she was like, well, I mean, this is kind of what you've been working for the last year, two years, however long it's been to do was to get to a place that you could learn enough, get enough confidence to buy a property. Like if you don't buy the property, kind of what are you doing? And I was like, you're right. I tell people if she had not confidently told me like, I trust you, go for it. I don't know if I ever would have bought my first deal and I probably never would have done real estate. So that was like a a huge deal to me looking back because she didn't give me one of those like, hey, you can do it. But if this goes south, I'm going to say I told you so. And we're going to bubble, you know, because there's a lot of people that do that of like, do whatever you want. And then they let you make the decision. And if it goes great, they're like, I always believed in you. But if it goes south, they're like, I told you so, you know, feeling that I didn't get that. And it was just kind of like, hey, we're on board, like do your thing. And I, and I support you really was a game changer for me pulling the trigger on that first property. So if she had not supported me to go out and pull the trigger and actually do that, I don't know if I ever would have. Talk to us a bit about that first property. What was it? Where was it? What was the strategy? Break it down for us. So it was like 2006-ish. So like totally different type of market there. But it was one of those ones where again, I'm coming in with like no money, no credit, no experience, no nothing. And we had these motivated sellers in Vegas that had like condos with rentals or houses. And you know, I was buying stuff in different markets like Michigan and, and uh, Vegas and Georgia. And I think Indiana at the time, Kansas City, like some of these like smaller markets. But basically, like at that time, you could go and say, hey, I'll buy your property, stated income loan, you give me $15,000, $20,000 back at closing, and then I just keep the property on a, you know, an interest-only loan for three, five, 10 years or whatever it is. I was able actually on those first couple of deals to get money back from the seller and then use that money to go and put it down as a down payment with a hard money lender for some other properties I was doing in some other markets. It was a little bit of like a kind of weird mix and match strategy that it was like, these ones are okay, but they're not like amazing deals, but they're okay deals for me to get my foot in. 
but they allow me to get some liquid reserves to put into some other deals that I could create some value in and all these different long-term rentals. So, and then over like the next six to 12 months, like all of those things just became like non-existent. You couldn't do anything. You couldn't do cash out refis. Like, so it became a little bit of a mess, but that was like a, I got into like the tail end of when that was happening. Like the year, a couple of years before that, people were just amassing like six figures a year by just getting, you know, $20,000, $30,000 checks back at closing for these properties that they were buying with no money down. And I was like, that's what attracted me to it. I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, earn me money. I don't need credit. I can buy somebody's house. They're going to give me money to buy their house. And then I'm like, the mortgage is going to appreciate in six to 12 months. So me being like a, a young, naive, impressionable, like idiot was like, oh, this is like, I don't have to do anything. I can do great. You know, and nobody warned you at that time about like, well, here's the things that could happen. So that's why I'm always big now. And like the stuff like the podcast of just hearing like, yeah, here's how things could go right. But here's also how things could go wrong. And you should really know both sides and then hedge your own risk. Because at that time before they're like the internet and everything was so big and prevalent and you could really just connect with people on podcasts and social media groups and masterminds, all you were getting was like the bright, shiny Lamborghinis, girls and checks. Like you're like, oh, there's nothing could go wrong. I suffered from that and made some bad decisions initially, but now I try and not do that to people when I tell them about real estate. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top rated personal finance app, has built in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget, and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash MI. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash MI for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash MI for an extended 30-day free trial. Do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with all that's going on in the markets and feel like you just can't keep up with the day-to-day news headlines? Today's show sponsor, Yahoo Finance, is my go-to solution to keeping up with today's top news and stay informed with what is happening globally. With Yahoo Finance, I'm able to see the biggest trends and biggest movers in the stock market, what is happening with interest rates, major geopolitical events, and much more. If it wasn't for Yahoo Finance, I would have no idea that Tesla is laying off 10% of their staff or why iPhone shipments are down 9% year over year. Yahoo Finance also has a number of other cool features, including a tool that lets you link in all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Yahoo Finance is one of my favorite tools I use in my investing toolkit, and it's what I use each morning to kick off my day and stay in the loop with what's happening in the markets. Join more than 90 million monthly users today and get comprehensive financial news and analysis at yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. All right, back to the show. 
as we all know, shortly after 2006, things went did go a bit south, quite a bit south, actually. And Vegas was one of those markets that was hit pretty hard during that time. So take us through that kind of next two, three years, four years for you as an investor. If you're getting started in 2006, you probably had a year or two that might have been good for you. But then after that, you're still pretty new of an investor. You're only in maybe a year or two before things got really, really soured. Talk to us what that experience was like as a relatively new investor. I was getting a lot of people, especially like, because at that point I was buying a lot of properties that were on market and I was literally just putting out offers on everything, like two, 300 offers. I was doing a lot of Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, like bank owned stuff. And I was, uh, I was dealing with a lot of negativity from realtors and from people just in general that were like, the market's bad, get out, get out, get out, get out, get out. But I mean, some of those properties I bought at the bottom... I've had tenants in them for years and they've appreciated over six figures easily and they're almost paid off now. So I tell everybody like as nervous as it was and everybody was saying, run for the hills, run for the hills, run for the hills. Some of the people that I remember that were beating me out on all these properties were like Blackstone and all these hedge funds. And I remember thinking like, I don't understand why they would pay all this money for all these houses in these markets when real estate's supposed to be terrible right now. And then you fast forward to where they are today and it's like, oh, I see. Like they understood that when stuff's on sale, you buy it. You know, you buy a TV on sale, you'll kill somebody on Black Friday to get a TV at 50% off. That's never going to be worth more money. Real estate is going to come back up. So they looked at it and said, when it's on the bottom, it's always going to come back up. But when you're in a down market, like one of my buddies, Jim, always says, when times are great, you think they'll never end. When times are bad, you think they'll never end. So like at that point, it was kind of like, is this market ever going to turn around? So I was trying to keep things for rentals because I had gone through that accident and my my whole like mentality at that time was I had a plan in life. I was going to go do these jobs. I was like, health was good. Everything was good. I could have taken my pick of the litter, a lot of these like federal or, or state law enforcement jobs. And then after my hand injury, I couldn't do any of them anymore. And I felt like everything was taken away from me in like the blink of an eye. So I had this mindset of like scarcity that I had to rebuild everything in a very short amount of time. And I felt like every deal was the only deal. I started trying to hold properties as rentals. And then to kind of parlay into your initial question about getting into then wholesaling, one of my mentors at the time, I was like, hey, I just got another property. I'm going to fix it up. I'm going to rent it out. I got some credit partners. I got some cash partners. And he was like, the money that you have, you're putting in for these rehabs, but you don't have any money really at all anyway. Like You need to be accumulating cash right now because you don't have any. And I was like, nope, 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 nope. I want to keep properties. I want to stockpile a portfolio. I'll probably never get another deal accepted again. Like you, ever, you think it's like the last one. And then he was like, hey, if you keep calling me and asking me for advice and not taking my advice, I'm going to stop picking up the phone. So I was like, all right, what do you want me to do? And he was like, wholesale the next property you have under contract, make some cash, and then take some of that cash and start paying down some of your rentals or using it to fund some rehab so you're not paying out of pocket for this stuff. So I literally started advertising the property as a wholesale property to show him that it didn't work and it was a stupid idea. And somebody wound up buying it like that day. And that's what kind of changed me from going, oh, like I can make money pretty quick with like pretty much no money out of my own pocket and start to establish cash without having to go through this whole thing of like refinancing with banks and dealing with contractors and doing all this other stuff. And that's when for the next couple of years, I focused more on doing wholesaling because it felt like where the market was, it was one of the, the least risky strategies I could do because I really wasn't taking on any, any kind of liability or risk by just wholesaling the property off. For those listening, who haven't heard the previous episodes we've had on the show about wholesaling, give us an overview of what wholesaling is. So in essence, wholesaling is buying low, selling low. At that point, I was getting deals again on the market, but they were deals that anybody could have technically bought. But because I put so many offers out and because I spent so much time training realtors to want to work with me and be patient to put those offers in, because a lot of realtors, you're putting offers out at 10, 15, 20 cents on the dollar. They're working on commission you do that once or twice, they're never calling you back again. That was like a, a lot of part of the craft is like kind of getting people on your side and letting them understand like, hey, I'm going to be putting out some, some pretty crappy offers, but we're going to put enough of them out that we are going to get a handful in the next six months. And if you worked with just like a home buyer, then maybe you'd get one deal and then 15 years later, they sell their house, they call you back. But I'll be your best client with five deals like in six months. Getting that then and getting properties that were at a discount, I could then turn around and maybe not sell it retail, but say, hey, I have this property. It's under contract. I have the exclusive rights to buy it so people can't go around me and get it. Let's say in that situation, I was into it for... So a real life example of one of them. It was $125,000 property. It would have rented for a decent amount. It was like a basic three bed, two bath. It would have made a good rental, needed a little bit of work. So I turned to somebody else and said, hey, I know you told me you're looking for some rentals. You're looking for stuff in this area. 
here's this property at 125. It's actually got an ARV of 225. And when you fix it up or whatever it might be. So it was either an upside for that person to now come in and do the work and make it a fix and rent or a fix and flip that they would have had some equity and some cash flow that they could have built in. I'm taking a small fee of maybe two, three, five. In that case, it was $10,000. They pay me that. I walk away. I give it to them. And now they can fix it up and make maybe 30, 40, 50, $60,000. I'm buying it low. In that case, I put the work in to negotiate the deal down and put all the offers out. In today's market, I'm going direct to seller and getting the deals there. But I'm basically locking a deal out at a discount and I'm selling it at a discount to another investor that's going to make a lot more money than me flipping it or today's market, maybe Airbnb it or keeping it as a long-term rental or refinance. With all the different strategies that you've done in real estate since those early days, why do you still wholesale to this day? Fantastic question. One of the things I look at is everything's not a deal for me. So there's sometimes buyers that have a different buy box. So I would look at it and say, you know what, this specific deal, I don't have a team in this market. I don't have the time to find a team in this market. These margins are just a little bit too tough for me. Maybe I'm not looking to hold a rental there. Maybe I don't want to pull up a flip right now. So at different times in my investing cycles, I'm looking to take on different things. So because for the last 15 years, I've always just gone out and just said, hey, I'm looking for deals. If you have deals, send them. People send me stuff that like like anything from a, a basic single family home and like your average market to a hotel. You know, so I get all these weird things. And then there's people that I go, like, hey, Nick, do you want this property in Arkansas? I'm like, I'm not really looking for anything in Arkansas, but hang tight. And then I'll write to my buyers list and say, anybody wants something in Arkansas? And somebody goes, yeah, I'll take that. And I go, cool, that worked out really well. So it just becomes that people send me stuff that not necessarily is in my buy box numbers wise, area wise, or I just don't have the capacity to take it on at that point. You know, there's times I've done 200,000 plus dollar rehabs. Right now, I wouldn't take that on, but there's a lot of investors that would. Second option to that is there's always a good mix of like, you can make $20,000, dollars $40,000 cash like that on a wholesale and then take that and throw that into another deal. But I also started doing multifamily. And this is really where I started looking doing more wholesale stuff and bigger wholesale stuff was because I tend to do too much at once. Like I'll overcommit myself to stuff. I suck at saying no to stuff. But my business partner is really good at, at giving me that voice of reason and kind of being the, the tough love of like, hey, you might not want to do that. Here's really where you need to focus on stuff. So we were renovating 100 multifamily units between two buildings. And because I was doing a lot of this other stuff, I started dropping the ball a little bit because I wasn't focused on that because I had always been used to wanting to buy like 5, 10, 15, 20 properties and have all these projects going on at once. And I was pretty good at managing those. But then when you throw in a bigger project, it becomes like, well, you don't really need five or 10 of those. You have one huge project that probably would have paid you the same as five or 10 of these single family homes. So she made me promise like, hey, if we have a big project going on, anything else that comes up in between until that gets stabilized or paid out or refinanced, just wholesale the other deals that are coming in so you don't lose focus on this. Because I don't want you to lose the opportunity because people are always looking for deals. But like, I also don't want you to, to ruin like the thing of pay us three or 400 grand this year because you're paying attention to something that's going to pay you five. So I made a deal with her that anytime we had a big project, any other stuff that was coming in, instead of me buying it and holding it, I would wholesale it off. And that's what got me into actually wholesaling commercial properties, which pays like a, a lot more money, which funds all the stuff to get those other properties up and running. Is this still a good strategy today for new investors who are looking to get started without a lot of capital? I think whether you have a lot of capital, no capital, no matter what it is, learning how to wholesale is always an amazing strategy to have because what you're basically doing is getting paid a fee because you were able to find a deal. And I don't care what type of market we are for the last 15 years. I've always wholesaled some deals. It hasn't, it's not, always not my main strategy, but I've always wholesaled at least some deals every year. Who I have wholesaled those deals to changes over the years. You know, People are looking for rentals, people are looking for flips. Maybe it's a, like a crazy market. So I wholesale a deal to a family that's going to move in because they can't find anything else. And the husband's at contracts. Being able to find a deal, I feel like, is a skill that will pay you off in any market for the rest of your life. At some point in your investing career, I always think it makes sense to get good at wholesaling, to establish cash, because everybody talks about no money down deals. If you're putting out offers consistently and you get a bunch of offers accepted, like what I have found is it's, it becomes a feast or famine thing where it comes in waves that you got nothing, 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 four or five offers accepted, nothing, 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 two, three offers accepted. Instead of maybe especially somebody new that's coming in, they don't have experience money or cut initially, taking on four or five deals at once is probably not a smart idea. That's something I did when I first started that I wish somebody would have reminded me like, hey, you don't have to be rich on Monday. Do one, focus on flipping one or getting one up to a fix and rent, and then wholesale the other three or four, make five or 10 grand on those, use that to fund this one. 
And now you literally just did a no money down deal. So I always like the idea of like cherry picking the best one or two, wholesaling a couple others over and finding a way to create cash. Because if you can have a skill of being able to come in and use what I, I always use the term, like you have it in the bank or you have it in the tank. So if you have it in the tank and you're willing to put the work in and put the time in to call realtors or get on the phone and call, call or text message you direct to sell the campaigns, there's always somebody looking to buy a property at a discount. I don't care who it is or what's going on in the market. When you're able to do that, you can always find a way to make money regardless of what's going on with your credit situation, with the market, because when the markets start to go down or up or whatever happens that people are worried about Russia or gas prices or the election, cool. You don't want to take out any market risk. Keep your pipeline going. Keep your sellers and buyers in line, but just make money wholesaling it until you figure out when the smoke's going to clear. And then we know what's happening. Well, like the beginning of the pandemic was a great time that people were like, I get on one mastermind and people were like, the market's going to tank. And then you get on another one and like, the market's going to be amazing. And I'm like, well, very smart people are telling me both sides of that. I feel very uneasy about what's going to happen. So instead of me taking on a six, 12 month project, I'll just wholesale it, make a good $10,000, $15,000, and then wait to see what happens in the market and then make my next decision after that. Once someone understands the strategy behind wholesaling and how it works, the next logical question that I almost always get is, well, how do I actually find these properties to wholesale? So break down for us the strategies that you use to find properties that you can wholesale and maybe even some of the ones that you don't use, but you know that do work. The strategies for finding deals, I feel like it's not necessarily properties that I find to wholesale. It's all the same thing of like, I'm looking to find properties that I can buy at a discount. The exit strategy just becomes, am I going to buy it and take it down myself for a fixer, for a rental, for an Airbnb, for a development deal? Or am I going to turn around and wholesale to somebody else? But the mechanics of how I'm going to farm out there and try and get deals at a discount are all the same. Once I get it, then I'll find out what my strategy is going to be to sell it. That's another thing that's changed over the years. So when I first started doing this, it was just reaching out to realtors and I was buying a lot of stuff off market, bank on foreclosures. In today's market, it's really hard to get deals like off the MLS through realtors. So I'm doing things direct to seller for the single family side where I'm doing text messages, I'm doing RVM drops, I'm doing a lot of cold calling. I have people pulling like all the typical distress list types of stuff that you see from like prop stream and list source and public records and tax default lists and all those kind of things where somebody has some sort of motivation. And then I'm looking to try and stack those lists to see if they're popping up on multiple lists and then having my guys call them first. On the single family side, that's been a big piece of kind of what I've done. On the multifamily side, it's come more from networking. And I do still get some single family stuff from networking, but from the masterminds that I'm in, from the Facebook groups that I'm in, if I'm out there looking for deals, I'll have either my VAs or a couple of times a year, I'll go on and I'll just bomb all these Facebook groups or I'll go and I'll, I'll contact some people because it's like, if I'm in a few different masterminds and there's guys in these masterminds that are like, we have properties to sell. And then guys in these other masterminds are like, we're looking for properties to buy. I can literally just marry them together and go, well, you're looking for this. Here's what I have. You're looking for this. Here's what I have. And we just kind of JV on those deals. It's been a combination of me going directly to sellers that are coming off distress lists and public records lists combined with social media groups, masterminds, and networking over the years of people just sending me stuff that they think might hit my buy box or some of my buyer's buy boxes. For anyone who heard Nick say RVM might not know what that is. That stands for ringless voicemail. In case you don't know what that is, basically it means that the person who's receiving your call doesn't actually get your call. It doesn't actually ring on their end. It just goes directly to their voicemail. I have no idea technologically how that works. I just know that it does work. <laughs> and you are basically able to leave them a voicemail without having to speak to them. So that's what ringless voicemail or RVM stands for. Nick, the next question I usually get when someone is learning about wholesaling is how do they find someone to buy their property? You mentioned that you have masterminds that you're able to connect the two. You mentioned that you have the buyers list. But I find people that are on board with the strategy and they might even believe that they can find underpriced real estate. But once they have it under contract, what are the ways that someone who doesn't already have a buyer's list or isn't in masterminds can find somebody to buy the property from them? Right now, we're thankfully in a seller's market. So it makes it a lot easier to sell a deal because there's lack of inventory. So really the skill in a seller's market is for the acquisition side of it. So for the disposition side, if I was starting from scratch and I got a deal under contract, the first thing I would do if I didn't have a list in place is jump on as many Facebook groups as I can and just start blasting that I have this deal, I have this deal. And I, I do a combination of either hitting the generic ones. So you, you look at the ones that have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. And I look for the ones that have a lot of recent activity because you can see some of them, there's a lot of people on there, but there's really just, there's not a lot of engagement. So there's not a lot of active investors in there. And then there's some of them that are just, you know, crap, you jump on it and it's all like, 
international weird things and like sex pics and like work from home. You know what I mean? So it's like, these ones aren't good. But what happens is as you start to post your deals on those groups, I go to the big ones first and then I'll niche down. Maybe I have like a land development deal in Lakeland County, Florida. You can find very specific groups for almost anything too. So I go big to cast a wider net to attract some people that are just looking for deals all over because a lot of people, especially now, are just kind of open to anywhere. But then I'll also go very specific and try and target and niche down where my property is and what my property is and what my strategy is. And I'll, I'll just post and post. And generally, that's enough to at least get feedback that I can tell, do I have a deal or not? Because overall, if you have a property and nobody's putting out offers on it or nobody's buying it from you, it's probably because you paid too much for it or it's just in a bad area. Like Generally, if it's got a spread and it's not in like middle of nowhere or like a really dangerous area, you'll generally find somebody to buy it. But social media is an absolutely incredible tool that I didn't have initially. I'll also use uh, software and public records to find cash buyers in those zip codes. If you don't have a budget that you want to pay to pull lists of buyers or buy into things that you can, can network with that, social media would be the first place I go. I used to use Craigslist a lot more. I don't know how effective it is today with social media being on that, but that's another great place to do it. And I literally just sold uh, two like very small dollar-wise, but good percentages on eBay too, which I haven't done in years and years and years, which is like another cool thing. But I think of dispositions as marketing, like an advertisement. So if I have a TV show, that's my commercial. The more places I can put that commercial, which is me saying, I have a property, is anybody looking for a property at a discount that would make a good flip rental Airbnb? The more places I can put that, the better off I'm going to be. And I'll literally just keep doing that over and over again. Every time I get a new property, I just repost in the same places and I keep doing the same things. And you'll start to see exponentially, it'll start to double, then it'll start to triple. And then what happens is you have this large net of like people that are messaging you, emailing you, Facebook messaging you, LinkedIn messaging you. And just hitting you on all these different platforms that you posted. And what I'm trying to do from there now is narrow down to like, who are my butt kickers and who are my tire kickers? Because you're going to get a lot of people that are just wasting your time, never going to do anything, never going to put an offer out, completely unrealistic offers out there. And then from there, I'll find a handful of good people that I know, like these are serious buyers. These guys will buy multiple properties from me. And I start to then nurture those relationships and just focus on the VIP buyers that I know are going to close and are actually in that market and kicking butt and taking names. If you end up coming across any other deals in Lakeland, Florida, be sure to let me know because I have somebody that, <laughs> that will probably buy them. I know somebody that buys there pretty frequently. So let me know. Awesome. Yeah, 100%. So what happens if somebody gets a contract, a property under contract, and they can't find somebody to assign it to, or they can't find somebody to buy the property from them? What happens then? As long as you're protected in your contracts, again, we're going back to the, the paperwork side of that, that you have clauses in there that say that for X, Y, and Z reasons, you have X, Y, and Z timelines that you can pull out of that deal, which a lot of the times like due diligence, inspection, partner approval, financing, there's things in there that you can use within seven, 10 days if it's an on-market property. Sometimes I've gotten 30, 60, 90 days on off-market properties. But during that time, part of the reasons like I'll go right out and I, I won't waste time going to try and find buyers. I'll start hitting all my lists right away and get as much feedback as I possibly can on what people are willing to pay for that deal or what the feedback is on that deal. Because one of the things I always tell people is that deals are not found, deals are created. If I have a deal in that sense that I send it out, and let's say I wanted $100,000 for that deal. And I go, guys, here's all the information for the property. I think it's worth 200000 I think it'll run for 2500 a month. I think the market's great. X, Y, and Z. Here's why I think it's a good deal. Let me know what you think. And then I get 10, 20 people that write to me and they go, hey, I saw the property. I looked up the property. I, I sent my contractor over there. Your rehab budget's off. Your ARV's off. The market's off. All these things are off. I'll still push for, well, what would be your offer? I understand you can't pay 100000 but what can you pay? And generally, as long as it's not like, again, a really bad area, people will come back and say, well, I could pay you 85. I could pay you 82. And I go, okay, cool. So I'm always trying to get feedback on what makes it a deal, what makes it not a deal what stuff I had gotten information from the seller for that might not be accurate, and then what that number would be. So now, let's say in theory, I had a 14-day inspection period that I had to potentially back out if I didn't find a buyer. When it comes to the end of that, I'll go back to the seller and say, hey, look, here's all the information that we have on this property. I know that you said this was the condition it was in, and this is the value, and these are the things that you thought were X, Y, and Z with the property. However, here's what we actually came up with, and here's what our numbers are. And because of that, we can no longer purchase that property. And then people start to get, you know, they're really excited because they think they're selling it. And now they're down on the floor. Oh my goodness, I was already spending that money. So they go through that emotional roller coaster. And then you go, however, 
if you still would like to sell that property, if you still want to go take your trip to Disneyland or pay off whatever back tax, whatever the thing you were going to do with the money you were going to get for this property, whatever financial thing that was going to solve or a personal problem that was going to solve, we can still do that and close next Friday as we agreed. However, I would need to close for it at 79,000, 72,000, whatever. But I have that number knowing somebody else would have already come in and said, hey, Nick, I'd pay you 87. I can't pay you 100. Now maybe I can still salvage the deal and get it at 82 and make $5,000 on there. And then when they come back and they're emotional about it, I go, I totally get it. I understand if you can't do that. However, here's a list of the things of why this property is not worth what we thought it was. And here's what it's going to take. And here's all the things in there that you will not have to disclose if you put it back on the market. So if you don't want to move forward, that's okay. However, I will tell you at some point, these are just the facts and you're going to have to face those facts, whether it's today, tomorrow, a year from now, I understand. But I've already sent kind of the top 10, 15, 20 buyers in your market to this property and none of them are going to pay that $100,000. You don't have to sell it to me, but at some point you are going to have to face this reality. And sometimes they'll tell me to screw off and I'll never hear from them again. But sometimes they'll say yes right there or they'll go and they'll sit on it for a couple of days and they'll call me back and they'll say, okay, let's do it at 82. So if I can get them to agree to renegotiate based on a price that I've gotten from people that have made me offers, then we move forward. But if not, I'll say, if you can't do it, I totally understand. Consider this the termination of that contract. Please refund my earnest money deposit and I wish you the best of luck. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So, If you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither Public Investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade, lounge access, a free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. As I was preparing for this episode, I saw on your Bigger Pockets profile that you flip properties on eBay, of all places, <laughs> eBay. And you just mentioned that you've done some recently. Honestly, I don't even know what question to ask about this because I, I just have never heard anything about it. So just take us through this, that experience, how it all happened, how it works, what you're doing, and why the heck you're using eBay. 
I wasn't for a very long time. But when, you know, 2005, 2006, there wasn't like all this prevalent social media stuff. So like eBay was really like the big marketplace there because that's just like Craigslist and eBay were two of like the biggest things that you were like, wow, like where are they going to go from here? It can't get any better than this. At that point, I remembered, I don't know if it's changed a lot over the years, but at that time, the amount of eyes and traffic you would get on something you would post on eBay was like crazy for the time when you would look at like the views, like 100,000 something views. That was like unheard of that. eBay was the only place that was getting that kind of traffic. But specifically at that time, one of the regulations that they had was for real estate specifically, I believe it was the only thing that you could actually post on eBay that you could put an external link on. There was nothing else that you could post that you were allowed to put a link on eBay. But for real estate, if you had a website that you had other properties or you wanted to use it as lead capture, you could post a deal on eBay, post your link and really drive traffic for buyers there because anybody that's on there is obviously looking to buy a property. That stuff starts to come in handy. So what I would do there is I would post it and say, look, and I mean, it's, it's been a while, but it was like, you know, I have this property. It's a $30,000 property in Georgia. It's going to need $20,000 worth of work. It'll be worth $100,000. It'll rent out for $1,000 a month you can bid on the rights to this property. So I hold the contract, I'm assigning the rights, what you're bidding on is the assignment fee. So basically what I would do is say, you know, you're still gonna have to pay $25,000 for this property when you go buy it. However, what's the fee that you're gonna pay me for finding the deal and selling you the deal? And then people would literally bid up the wholesale fee. I think I was making like, you know, four grand, five grand, six grand, just posting them there. And then again, what was cool was after somebody bought it for three, four, five, six thousand dollars you got that money. That was your fee. The other person went and they came there and then they, they bought it. But you would generally be able to see who was bidding on it, who was watching on it. And then there was like second, third, fourth, fifth chance offers. So you were going there and being able to qualify like 5, 10, 15 legitimate buyers that were placing offers and bidding on stuff. And now you know like they all want rentals in Kansas City in this area and they're willing to pay X, Y, and Z for it. So it was a really great strategy at that time to wholesale properties or even if nobody wound up buying it at that auction, building up like a legitimate buyer's list of people that were actually doing real estate at the time was like a huge thing. I did some of those then, and then I hadn't done it for years. And then over the last couple of weeks, I just threw some tax liens on eBay and just sold them just to see like if it worked or whatever, just to start to build up a buyer's list again. Not like a, you know, you're not making a ton of money on them, but like when you look at the return, it's like a, I think the last one was like a 308% return or something like that for like three days that you just post something and somebody buys it and they send you a couple hundred bucks. So it's just something I was toying with because I was like, if I can do this and you can make like, you know, three, four, five hundred dollars a day, you could just start to stock up on like liens and things like that. And maybe now I'll try and do the same thing, maybe throw some stuff on eBay and see if I can run up an assignment fee for it. I just started doing that again, like in the last two weeks, and I hadn't done it probably in like 12 years. So I'm trying to play on it a little bit now and see if maybe it's like a, an untapped resource that you're still able to capture some traffic that maybe you weren't before. I wonder if you could build the specific, like a, a real estate platform similar to eBay, but it's specific for this. Maybe I don't know a ton about the tax lien process, but just wholesalers. You could just literally make a wholesaler eBay website that's very similar to that, but it's just wholesalers. That'd be awesome. I mean, I would love something like that. And I think another thing that's kind of been cool about eBay is eBay tends to bring in a lot of like international buyers. So maybe you're catching some things that maybe aren't popping up on your generic social media stuff or just buyers lists, which is kind of cool. Yeah, that's interesting. One of the other aspects of your investing, we, I mean, we've talked about a lot of different strategies. We've talked about lease options, wholesaling, flipping, rentals, out of state. I mean, we've talked about all kinds of stuff. The other thing you do is you've recently got into development. Why did you decide to start to do development and then walk us through one of your deals kind of from the beginning to the end? Sure. It's one of those things where I, I go back and forth because I, I talk to people like my mentors, guys in my masterminds, you're like, man, you got to focus on one thing. But then it's kind of like, you know, I haven't really been focusing on one thing, but that, that's why I almost always have like some sort of opportunity, but it's always been something different. And that's why I'm not amazing. Like we were talking about East, like I haven't done like a ton of lease options, but I've done some and I, I have like all these little weird like experiences and strategies from just trying different things because stuff comes across your desk. And you go, man, this doesn't really work for my current model, but maybe there is a way to turn it into a deal. And then I start to look at all these other ways of like, well, maybe if I did a sub two, maybe if I did a lease option, maybe if I did a wholesale, maybe an innovation agreements, all these different things. I'm always looking for different ways to make money. And then you start to look at other guys who are going, well, you're doing this, but I'm doing that. And then you get like the grass is always greener of like, well, that guy's making like three times the amount of money. And I want to do that. It was an interesting thing where one of my buddies is really successful at buying land, subdividing land and developing on it. 
I moved uh, part time, like I'm in Chicago, part time I'm in New York and in New York, there's no land. And then in like Illinois, there's land everywhere. And I was like, whoa, like this is crazy. Like, what is this? You can like go buy land. And it was really funny because um, I was looking at some of this stuff and I really wasn't sure like how to value it. And getting back to trying to make sure you have the time to focus and learn something. I was hesitant to jump in. I was just kind of dabbling and looking at stuff and just trying to feel it out. But I didn't really have the focus or the time to really dive in and commit to it. One of my buddies would, like, tells people this story when they're like, how do you find deals in news? He's always like, you know, you go out and you jog. And when you go out and you jog, you find deals. And I'm like, dude, that doesn't work. Like, Stop telling people that. And then literally, I'm out jogging one day and the, the seasons had changed. So the leaves and stuff came off of the trees. And behind it was like a for sale sign on this vacant lot. And it was like, oh, wow, I actually did find a deal like just jogging around. So I was like, I take it back. That actually worked. So my partner's like, hey, call that number like by the tree over there. Like that thing's like literally right across the street from where you live. See what's up with it. I called and the broker, it must have been like an expired listing. He didn't even remember the deal. He didn't even know what I was talking about. And then when it clicked and he was like, oh, let me call you back. I guess he called the seller. Realtor kept calling me, calling me, calling me, calling me, calling me. And I'm like, hey, man. I was just kind of asking, like, I'm really just kind of wasting your time here. I'm not willing to buy this. I don't know anything about it. Like, I have all these other projects going on. Like, I'm probably not your guy. So he wouldn't give up and he kept calling, calling, calling. And I was like, look, man, she's asking like $700,000 for like nine acres. The offer I would have to make you if you're trying to force me to make you an offer right now would be solo. She would never accept it. And he was like, well, just make me an offer, whatever it is. And I was like, 300,000. And the next day he's like, uh, approved or she accepted it. And I was like, oh, crap. You know, so I almost did it like, like trying to blow him off, like she'll never take that. And she did. So I was like, okay, well, now I have to look into this a little bit. It was interesting because again, back to people give advice and they really have no idea what they're talking about. You know, I always joke around that like the guy you call doctor might be the guy who graduated last in his medical class. He's still called a doctor. It doesn't mean he's any good, but people go, well, this person's a doctor. This person's a lawyer. This person's a realtor. They must be amazing. It's like, not really. So I called and I said to the guy at the city, I'm like, hey man, like I'm calling to find out like what the deal is with this land. What could I do with it? And I, I already know I can't do medical and I can't do multifamily and I can't make it a coffee. And I told him all the things that everybody told me you couldn't do with the land. And he kind of just let me go. And then he was like, well, I'm interested. Like, why do you think you can't do any of those things? And they go, well, the realtor told me and the broker told me and this investor told me like all these things that the city shot down. And he goes, well, I'm the guy who would make all those decisions. And I will tell you that nobody has called me with any of those things. So whoever's telling you that is completely full of crap and, and, and just wrong. He goes, I'm the one who makes all those decisions. And I will tell you, if somebody's willing to put the time and energy into actually come to me with a proposal and show me that they're putting some work into trying to fit something into where this land is, I'm willing to entertain almost any conversation. And even if it doesn't work specifically for where you're looking, I know enough about the city and the village and what's going on all around here that I could find someplace to probably fit your project if it's a good project. He goes, so if you're serious about doing something with this land, call a civil engineer, put some on the paper, come into my office and I'll see if you're serious. And I was like, cool, fair. That started the process of like, is there even any money here? What would you even do with it? And at the time, we, it was right before the pandemic. So we actually planned on buying the nine acres, subdividing the nine acres, and then building it, and then either selling them off or keeping them long-term as rentals. But the key here was that with land, the same way you would buy a house, and like the house is distressed, maybe it's not worth a lot right now, but you do like granite countertops, stainless steel appliances, open floor plan, new floors, all this beautiful stuff like the HCTV houses. You've now increased the value, it's worth more. You buy a multifamily property, you decrease the expenses, you increase the income, now it's worth more. With land, the land that we had had sat vacant so long because this specific piece of land was considered county land. So the county actually owned it, not the village. People really weren't interested in buying it from the developer standpoint because you had to go through the process of annexing in that land to make it part of the village. So we went through like a process of going, okay, if we can get this land annexed and then we can get it entitled for a specific thing. The second they put that final plat stamp on there and the second they put the annexations on there, it's the equivalent of like a value add for land. So now that land, once you get that stamp, is worth exponentially more. So we were buying it like nine acres. I think we got it split eventually into like 31 units. You're buying them for like 10,000 a lot. But when they're annexed and they're entitled, even just like raw land, there, lots are going for a minimum of $30,000 and up. So you're going, okay, cool. And I'm talking to builders and builders are going, if you take it through the entitlement process, if you get an annexed in, we'll buy it from you for you know, 900, 950, whatever it is. That process became really interesting. And we, did, we decided not to build on it because during the pandemic, a lot of things changed, the situation changed, the market changed a little bit. 
So we decided to just turn around and sell it to another builder. But that really was what the process was, is taking this land that nobody saw any value in because you were going to have to jump the roofs. And again, like I keep saying, you, you have it in the bank or you have it in the tank. And I didn't understand it at first because th- there was a point where we were almost through the annexation process. And I would talk to some builders and I go, look, we literally have a date on the calendar with the city. You could look it up on the county records. It's next Tuesday at 9 a.m. And it literally says in the docket that we're going to get the approval for the annexation. So why don't you just buy it from me today? And they go, nope, we're going to buy it from you after we get that stamp. And I'm like, I'm going to charge you like $75,000 more. Why wouldn't you just buy it now? They're like, we don't buy it until we get the stamp. And I was like, this is so dumb. I don't understand. And my partner was like, well, you know how to get deals. And I was like, yeah. She goes, but you still buy deals from wholesalers sometimes. I go, well, yeah. She goes, well, why would you do that? I go, because the wholesaler is saving me time that I don't have to make those calls, knock on those doors, put those mailers out, call those people. So I'm willing to pay them five, six, seven thousand dollars $7,000 if they're saving me months of time that I can go now and make $30,000, $40,000 on it. And she's like, that's the exact same thing that these builders are doing. They build. They don't want to go through all these processes with the county and do all this nonsense and all this paperwork. They just want somebody like you to go do that work. They buy it and they do what they're good at. And I was like, man, like that makes a lot of sense. So then you start to see that, especially now, I feel like it's one of the best times to find a strategy where you can get land, do something to it. Either you get it at a discount or you get it and you create value in it and selling it off to a builder. Because in a market where people have to build shortage on houses, land's probably worth more and more demand than it ever has because even construction crews, like there's GCs that need to keep their subs busy. So they'll just buy something to build so they don't lose their guys because there's no houses to buy. So they have to build houses. It just opened my eyes to like a really cool strategy for being able to do that. So currently we bought it for 315, a lot of hiccups just because of the pandemic, because in the middle of that, it should have been like a 30, 60, 90, like let's even call it six months for like taking it through that approval process. You got to talk to civil engineers. You got to work with the architecture. You got to get the wetland study. You got to get the EcoCAD study. They got to do an environmental test. So there's things that you have to do, money you have to put out. But when you go through all that process, now it's worth more. But you need the city to be active to put the stamp and go through the approval process and have the meetings. During the pandemic, no meetings. So everything literally sat on the shelf for like almost a year, which was kind of crazy. And then they started doing Zoom meetings, which are terrible for anybody who's going through that process. It's like, all the etiquette of showing up at a meeting in front of like, you know, a panel of like your peers and there's like the cop there and everybody says the pledge of like they would never get up in front of a room and say the things that they're saying on a Zoom. But you know, it's like keyboard warriors. That was a whole crazy thing. We were literally the first people in I think the history of the county to ever have like an online meeting for like a city approval. So crazy process. But at the end of the day now, you know, you buy it for 315, you put like maybe fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars into getting it to the point where now they'll go and they'll approve that project. And we have it under contract now to sell in the next 60 days for 750000 I think my biggest takeaway from not only the story that you just told, but just this whole episode in general, because we've talked about so many strategies, is Brandon Turner often talks about having a bunch of different tools in your tool belt. And if you only have a hammer, the only thing you can go do is really hit a nail. Versus if you have all kinds of different tools in your tool belt and you can find a way to make, you know, make different stuff. And that's kind of what you're explaining here is that you don't necessarily have to only focus on the hammer, but you can use your other tools if something comes across your, your table. And so that's my biggest takeaway from this episode. As we wrap up the show, Nick, I like to give everybody a chance to give a handoff to the audience as to where the best place is to connect with you, learn from you, find you, reach out to you. Anywhere really that is the best place to find you on the internet. I really appreciate that, man. So uh, podcast-wise and social media-wise, if you go to nicknicknick.com slash links, it has all the ways to subscribe and listen to the podcast and all the ways to follow me on pretty much any social media platform. I've made the mistake of just telling people, reach out to me on any of the social media platforms. And then I get lost in like the messages coming in from all these different people. So if somebody does want to have a conversation about me, I help them find like a small to mid-sized multifamily property or, or something like that that they want to connect on. They can text me directly at 516-540-5733. That's the best way if you want to talk about connecting and doing some real estate together. That's definitely the best way to do it. I've had a lot of episodes, but... I've had dozens and dozens of guests on the show who come back to me a couple of weeks after the episode goes live and say that our audience is the most active of any show they've ever been on. They say that they've had people reach out the most out of any show that they've ever been on. So guys, keep up the good work with that. If you like this episode with Nick, be sure to reach out to him. He was very kind and generous to give you his phone number if you're interested. 
be sure to do that. That's how we're able to continue to bring on awesome guests every week is from you guys showing them how much value uh, you they get from being on the show. So Nick, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you for the generous offer to help out our audience. And uh, we'll be in touch soon. Thanks so much. Man, I really appreciate you having me on. And just for everybody else that knows when I talk about like bringing the A game, the research you did ahead of time and the questions you had and the communications you had on this, man, you are an absolute stud and extremely impressive. So I really appreciate all the effort you put in and giving me the time to come on and talk with you, man. Anything I can ever do for you, you are on the top of my list, my friend. Thank you so much. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.